Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with Privacy Mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course, present my thoughts the way I want. Right again! Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh, there it is! Drawing board or... Miro! Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's won. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro Brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast, the show that explores the background of Tolkien's amazing world from the very beginning. I'm standing here on the coast. Well, the new coast of Middle Earth. Looking out into the west. Somewhere over that horizon, there is a land with elves. A deathless place of peace. And so many of the elves on the continent that survived this great conflict, the War of Wrath, and everything else that came before it, are now leaving. They're setting sail across this ocean for a new home. So word gets around about the Silmarils. Erindil, who is flying through the sky in his magic boat, and that makes me smile because it is a, it's still a little funny, but it's, it's canon. It is lore. It, <laughs> that's what's actually happening. And as we find out, Arendelle continues to do this. He doesn't come home and make a new home for himself in Valinor or anywhere else. He maintains watch of the skies. And we're going to go into why that is in a moment. And that Silmaril was up there. The other two were lost both to the bosom of the earth, deep underground, and then in the sea. Water, air, and earth. And I want to make a Captain Planet joke, but, uh, well, I guess I just did. <laughs> so, the elves who are left here don't really share the same motivation for staying in Middle-earth than they did before. 
so many of the Noldor who are still here decide to leave. In fact, the vast majority of them do. There's only a few names that we are given of individuals that we would be familiar with who decide to stay. And this is a turning point for the way these stories work. Because so much of the focus of these stories has been the elves. And this is framed in a way where we are to believe that these are documents that were compiled and written by the elves. So, of course, they are elven-focused. They're looking at the origin of the world, according to their knowledge of that. Their interactions with these great powers. Everything comes from an elven perspective. So what happens when the stories move on? When the majority of the peoples of Middle-earth are no longer elves? We're not getting stories about what's going on in Valinor from this part forward. And personally, that wouldn't be as exciting. Because the world of Middle-earth is changed. And the seeds that Melkor planted are still growing. And the majority of people left to tell the story of what's going on in Middle-earth are men, mankind, humans. And things are about to change in a very major way for humanity. So we're given this wonderful picture of the elves and their ships and returning into the West. Tolkien writes here, In those days there was a great building of ships upon the shores of the Western Sea, and thence in many a fleet the Eldar set sail into the West and came never back to the lands of weeping and of war. That seems very definitive. The Eldar. Now, originally, Eldar meant all of the elves, every elf ever, anywhere. But later on, the definition narrowed, and by this point, it meant the elves of the West, those elves who were from Valinor, who left the Noldor, the groups that had traveled and gone back and forth, specifically of the three main houses. We're not talking wild elves and and everybody else. We're talking the majority of the elves of the West. It goes on, it says, And the Vanyar returned beneath their white banners and were born in triumph to Valinor. These were the elves of the first clan, the ones who had come over as part of the army of the Valar in order to get rid of Morgoth once and for all. They came back as heroes. But they returned without the Silmarils from Morgoth's crown. And it says that they knew that those jewels could not be found or brought together again unless the world be broken and remade. And when they came into the west, the elves of Beleriand dwelt upon Tol Aresia, the lonely isle that looks both west and and east. Again, that's symbolic. These are elves that had dwelt most of their time in the east. And so, of course, they take their home on the Lonely Isle 
still part of Valinor, but the furthest eastmost point. Physical representation of a deeper meaning, and we see this a lot. We've talked about heights and things like that. They were admitted again to the love of Manwe and the pardon of the Valar, and the Teleri forgave their ancient grief, and the curse was laid to rest. So we get a conclusion here to the kinslayings and all the terrible things that the elves had done to each other that were caused by the pride of the greatest of the elves, echoes of the pride of the greatest of the Valar. And we get this nice little bow on it. So for these people, they return home. They are forgiven. But then we're told specifics here. Not all of the Eldalai were willing to forsake the Hitherlands. This means basically the rest of Middle-earth, where they had long suffered and long dwelt. This was their home at this point. This is where they had been. And some lingered many an age in Middle-earth. Among those were Círdan, the shipwright, Celeborn of Doriath with Galadriel, his wife, who alone remained of those who led the Noldor to exile in Beleriand. We're reminded again that Galadriel was one of the Noldor, that her pride is something that she wrestles with, much like somebody like Feanor. They are similar and yet so different. And then Tolkien mentions two other names who are very important figures, very important characters. In Middle-earth dwelt also Gil-galad, the High King. Remember, Gil-galad became the High King of the Noldor. And with him was Elrond Half-Elven, who chose, as was granted to him, to be numbered among the Eldar. But Elros, his brother, chose to abide with men. And from these brethren alone has come among men the blood of the firstborn and a strain of the spirits divine that were before Arda. We're told that this is a very important thing and we are given the lineage again of Elros's bloodline. For they were the sons of Elwing, Dior's daughter, Luthien's son, child of Thingol and Melian. Melian is a Maiar, so therefore that justifies the spirits of the divine in this bloodline. And Erindil, their father, was the son of Idril Celebrindel, Turgon's daughter of Gondolin. All of these great bloodlines are connected and they're combined in Elrond and Elros. Elrond chooses the elven life. Elros chooses mankind. And so we have this division here. And this will become very, very important because the children of Elros go on to create the bloodline of the kings of Numenor. The kings of Numenor becomes the bloodline of the kings of Gondor and Arnor. All of this descends from this connection here. And we've talked about this before. The few times that you have the pairing of an elf and a man or an elf and a Maya, all of that comes together in this line of descent. So what exactly does that mean? Well, that's a question that really gets answered in the telling of the second age and the third age of the story. We've seen 
the conclusion of what it means to have this bloodline in the Manish population and where that goes. It it turns into Aragorn is really what happens. And the end of the story at the end of the third age. But before that happens, there are a number of other events that have to be counted in the second age and the long period into the third age, because those ages of the world take longer than the first age did each of them by a significant amount. They last thousands of years. The first age lasted hundreds. But before we get the next part of the story where the focus shifts primarily from elves to mankind there's this nice little bow that gets put on the silmarillion as it is titled in the silmarillion when we say silmarillion we're talking about the book that was published but the book that was published has multiple other little books in it for example the beginning of everything the ainu lindale or the akelabeth which we are about to go into which talks about the second age the silmarillion is the story of the Silmarils. It is the story of the first age, very specifically. And that title was then used for the actual book that was published because it was the majority of the content that was in this collection of other stories. So how does the Silmarillion close? Like this. But Morgoth himself, the Valar thrust through the door of night beyond the walls of the world into the timeless void and a guard is set forever on those walls and Arendil keeps watch upon the ramparts of the sky yet the lies of Melkor the mighty and accursed Morgoth Boglir the power of terror and of hate sowed in the hearts of elves and men are a seed that does not die and cannot be destroyed. And ever and anon it sprouts anew and will bear dark fruit even unto the last days. Here ends the Silmarillion if it has passed from the high and the beautiful to darkness and ruin. That was of old the fate of Arda Mard. And if any change shall come, and the marring be amended, Manwe and Varda may know. But they have not revealed it, and it is not declared in the dooms of Mandos. So let me tell you a little story. You know that we get sponsors on these podcasts and Yuffie, who does these smart locks with video cameras in them, reached out and they sent me a smart door lock with a 2K camera, a doorbell and a finger reader, all the bells and whistles. And I was like, OK, cool. They sent it to me. I already have one on my back door. When I opened this up and installed it, I was like, why didn't I go with Yuffie to begin with? Because this 
is a step above the one that I've been using. The finger reader just works. The 2K camera is so clear. I can see when somebody's at the front door, if it's Amazon or if it's somebody trying to sell me something. It even has night vision and works in the dark. It makes me feel so much safer. Plus, my son can just put his finger on the door and just come right in when he gets home from school. He doesn't have to worry about losing keys and you don't even have to change the batteries in these because it's got like a 10,000 milliwatt hour battery that lasts for like four months. Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock. I think you'll love it. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today we discuss technical diagramming with systems architect Maya. Let's go. First question. You've spent 10 hours slogging over a sequence diagram that should have taken five. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board. And if I'm being honest, Miro would probably cut that time down by half. You know, with its AI tools and ready-to-go templates. Next, your diagrams become so bulky, it's more complex than the solar system. But all it takes is a few clicks and... It's Miro. I've used those technical shape packs way too many times. And stuff is just digestible on its infinite online canvas. Now, the final question. Everyone's brought in. But you have to make all these tasks all the way over in Jira. But wait, it's done. Is it... Miro. Easy with its two-way Jira sync. Easy to plot dependencies. Everyone always knows what's up. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people creating technical diagrams without workflow glitches. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. All right, here we are in the middle of the show. This is where we get to thank our patrons for being so awesome and welcome our new patrons. Welcome, big welcome to Diamond, Warren N., and Alfredo M. Welcome to the Patreon, friends. So glad that you are here. And we have to shout out our VIP patrons. This list just keeps getting longer. We are past the 200 mark also. So 202 current patrons. Thank you all for your support. Let's get through the list. We'll see if I can do this without missing up any names. Probably not. Uh, Anakin S, Austin C, Azel Razzle. Yeah, I got that one right this time. Bo, Brad S, Brandy D, Chewbacca, David S, David M, Drupal, Esoteric Rage, Fulcrum, Gavin Alaf, Goldberry, Jesse P, Katie S, Capenna, Larry, Michael E, Nick K, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Patrick W, Rivqua, Sam B, TJT, Tyler M, Wes P, and Who Let the Juan Out. Did I do it? I think I might have actually did that correctly. Thank you to all of you and to everybody who supports the show. If you're curious about what all of these people are doing signing up on the Patreon, then go to patreon.com slash L-O-T-R Lorecast, where you can see what they're getting, like ad-free episodes and bonus episodes, lots of bonus episodes, 60 plus bonus episodes at this point, where I'm talking in more detail about the things that we've been discussing on the show, 
or taking on interviews and giving my perspective of Tolkien's own words or responding to questions from the community. Lots of cool stuff over there on the bonus episodes. Go check those out. And if if we're helping you get through your workday and your commute, you know what? It might be worth it to, you know, help support the show. So give give that a consideration. Thank you so much for everybody for your support. Also, I like to read out the reviews that I get when they're five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. And we have a new one that came in. This is from a very long string of numbers. I'm not going to read out the whole string of numbers. Uh, who writes, this is from the U.S., great, five stars, real short and sweet, really great podcast. Anyone interested in Middle Earth should really give it a listen simple and to the point. Thank you so much, string of numbers. And anybody else who wants to help out the show, you can do the same thing. I'll read your stuff out in the future, or you can rate the show on places like Spotify or whatever podcast you're listening to this on. All of that is extremely helpful and it makes this possible for me. So thank you to all of you for your support. All right, we've got the rest of this episode to get through because things are going to change up a little bit. So let's go do that. So this feels like we get this bittersweet kind of ending. Things are kind of on the rise here. These things are just getting better, right? Like we went through this whole, the whole turmoil of the first age and all the terrible things that happened, the kin slaying and all the terribleness that Morgoth brought into the world and things get really dark. And then the Valar show up with their army and kick Morgoth's butt. So the world's better right? Everything's better. Everything's going to get better. The story has only to go up from here, right? And yeah, maybe that's true for a time. So we move into the Akelabeth. Now, Akelabeth, that means something. I'm sure it's got a happy me. No, I can't fool you guys. All of you have been listening to the show for a long time. Akelabeth means the downfall of Numenor. That doesn't sound so promising, does it? That seems kind of sad also. But the word Numenor, that's new. We didn't have Numenor in the first age of the world. This is a new thing. What exactly is Numenor? What is that? And this section, as I mentioned before, as you get further in the books, I almost said further in the books because words are hard. As you get further in the books, Everything gets a little bit shorter in description. Everything tends to have this kind of hands-off kind of 30,000 foot view of things perspective, but you it's kind of like that more as the book goes on. And by this point, we end up with very brief summaries of a lot of things. Some specific details, but a lot of a lot of brief summarization. So here, let's get into the actual text and what we can learn from it because we get a little bit of a a recap, which is handy, but uh, but specifically in Tolkien's works is not only handy because sometimes you just want to skip the recap because oftentimes his words are both very precise, but also, like I was saying, from like a 30,000 foot view, when you finally get a recap, 
the retelling of a story at the beginning of a new book that's talking talking about the summary of the previous book or in the appendices of, say, the Return of the King. Anywhere you get a recap, you often get a second possibility of a glimpse of something stated in different words that can give us a deeper understanding. So it's a great opportunity to take a closer look at something that we only really had one glance at before. So here, let's get into it. It says here, it is said by the Eldar that men came into the world in the time of the shadow of Morgoth. We immediately, right at the beginning of this, understand who the focus of this entire thing is going to be about. It's about men. And we're told that it's kind of through the elven perspective, the Eldar, but this is mostly about men. And they fell swiftly under his dominion. So there we go, right at the beginning. This is when men showed up in the shadow of Morgoth. And this is what they're like. They fall under his control. For he sent his emissaries among them, and they listened to his evil and cunning words, and they worshipped the darkness and yet feared it. This is an explanation for why there's so much evil in the world. Why are things so terrible? And a big part of it has to do with the fact that the elves were born differently than the men. The elves were born in a place of peace with only rumors of war on the horizon. And then they were found by the Valar. And although Morgoth got to some of them, a great number of them were brought over to Valinor. They were protected. They were guided. There was a hand there to help them. The men were not given the same benefits. They were born in the darkness. They worshipped the darkness. They feared the darkness. And Morgoth manipulated this for everything he could. But that's not the whole story, right? But there were some that turned from evil and left the lands of their kindred and wandered ever westward. Why westward? Well, maybe that's the direction that they had to go, but the world's a big place. It has to do with the turning from evil. The good things in this world are in the west. And somehow, deep down, they knew that. So they kept traveling to the west. Also, it goes on and says, For they had heard a rumor that in the west there was a light which the shadow could not dim. How did this rumor get to them? How did that get around? The servants of Morgoth pursued them with hatred, and their ways were long and hard. Yet they came at last to the lands that look upon the sea, and they entered Beleriand in the days of the War of the Jewels. And we've already gone over that story how the men showed up, how Finrod discovered them and became friends with them, offered them a hand in a very similar way to the way the Valar did the elves. The Adain, these were named in the Sindarin tongue, and they became friends and allies of the Eldar and did deeds of great Valar in the war against Morgoth. And we've just heard those stories. This is the bloodline that led to Baron, 
or Hurin, because there are different groups of men that came all seeking this light in the West. And then we're brought up to speed with the story. It says, Of them was sprung upon the side of his fathers, bright Arendil. In the lay of Arendil is told how at last, when the victory of Morgoth was almost complete, he built his ship Vingalut, that men called Rithenzil. And I'm going to pause there. For the first time, we get a mannish perspective on these elven things, right? And we know that Arendil felt more mannish, but went with the whole elven side of his bloodline because of his relationship with his wife and, and all of that. But we get a, a word for his ship from the mannish tongues, Rithinzil. And then we're told that he voyaged upon the unsailed seas, seeking ever for Valinor, which we heard the story about. For he desired to speak before the powers on behalf of the two kindreds, that the Valar might have pity on them and send them help in their uttermost need. Now notice here, this is, I think this is the first time, and I could be wrong. We've gone through the other texts over the last few episodes about what had happened with this story and how it was played out. But from that perspective, it was very elven focused. The elves wanted the Valar to come help save them because they needed their help and they caused the problems themselves. And they were, they were looking for grace and forgiveness. But in this version of the story, he's speaking before the powers on behalf of the two kindreds, all of the children of Iluvatar, elves and men that the Valar might have pity on them and send them help in their uttermost need. Therefore, by elves and men, he is called Arendil the Blessed. Both groups venerate him. They both have ties to Arendil. For he achieved his quest after long labors and many perils. And from Valinor there came the host of the lords of the west. But Arendil came never back to the lands that he had loved. And then we get another perspective on this war of wrath in the great battle. When at last Morgoth was overthrown and Thangorodrim was broken, the Adain alone of the kindreds of men fought for the Valar, the Adain alone, these descendants of these three houses of men, this very small population compared to all of humanity fought for the Valar. Whereas many others fought for Morgoth. Now, this isn't a surprise. We know about this. But I think what this does, and what this does for me rereading it, is it reinforces how small that group actually is. The population of those three people groups who happened to make it over to Beleriand and were befriended by the elves. That's it. If you are a human being at this time in history... There's a very small percentage chance that you are among these houses. If you lived nearby, you were definitely and not part of these houses. You were definitely working for Morgoth. If you lived far away, you probably knew nothing of the conflict going on in this part of the world. But you didn't know the Valar either. And you were under the fear of darkness, worshiping it like it was stated before. The majority of human beings on the planet. And it's about to become a planet because before that it was flat it's this whole weird thing um they they were living in the darkness they didn't know what light was they didn't know what good was 
They may have had a sense of hoping for it in their hearts, but they were blinded by the darkness that Morgoth had put into the world. So it's the majority of mankind who are still manipulated and have fallen for this ruse, I guess you could say, because they have not come in contact with anybody else who can enlighten them. After the victory of the Lords of the West, those of the evil men who were not destroyed fled back into the East because that's the only direction they could go. You couldn't go north. It was too frozen. You couldn't go south because the coastline cut in. Everything eventually would lead you to the east. Where many of their race were still wandering in the unharvested lands, wild and lawless, refusing alike the summons of the Valar and of Morgoth. Wandering in the darkness. They know that they feared Morgoth. They refused the summoning of the Valar. That that leads me to believe that maybe they put emissaries out there trying to say like, hey, we're here to help. But they were too scared. They were too ignorant of who they could trust. And the sentence isn't over. It ends with a comma. And they took them for kings. Who is them? The evil men who were working for Morgoth. They were educated in how to organize society, in what was going on. They knew more about the world. They seemed wise, and yet they were terrible and evil. And when they went back into the East and came across these humans who were not as developed as they were, they were lawless, they were wild, they were nomadic, they settled them down. They built societies, and they become kings of these scared people in the darkness. And we've seen this before. The Valar reach out a hand, but you have to reach back. They aren't going to force people to come to Valinor or to move into the West or to live among the elves or any of that. It says here, Then the Valar forsook for a time the men of Middle-earth who had refused their summons and had taken the friends of Morgoth to be their masters. And men dwelt in darkness and were troubled by many evil things that Morgoth had devised in the days of his dominion. Demons and dragons and misshapen beasts and the unclean orcs that are mockeries of the children of Iluvatar. And the lot of men was unhappy. And then we're given the conclusion to the Silmarillion again. But Manway put forth Morgoth and shut him beyond the world in the void that is without. And he cannot return himself again into the world, present and visible, while the lords of the West are still enthroned. So we get a similar picture, and yet things are a little bit different. Manway himself put Morgoth beyond the, the edges of the world into the void, right? So... That is a specific detail we didn't get before. And he cannot return present and visible while the Lords of the West are still enthroned. As long as the Valar reign, he can't come back in. Yet the seeds that he had planted still grew and sprouted, bearing evil fruit. It's talked about a lot that the world itself was Morgoth's ring. Sauron had a physical ring that he imbued his power into. Morgoth imbued his power into the world. So even once he was removed, his influence was still there. Just like if the ring had stayed and yet Sauron himself had went away, the ring would still corrupt people. 
Well, the world itself is doing that because Morgoth poured so much of himself into the world. For his will remained and guided his servants, moving them ever to thwart the will of the Valar and to destroy those that obeyed them. This the lords of the West knew full well. When therefore Morgoth had been thrust forth, they held counsel concerning the ages that should come after. They looked into the future. The Eldar they summoned to return to the West, and those that hearkened to the summons dwelt in the Isle of Aresia. And there is that land, in that land, a haven that is named Avalon, for it is of all cities the nearest to Valinor, and the Tower of Avalon is the first sight that the mariner beholds when at last he draws nigh to the undying lands over the leagues of the sea. We're given this image of Tol Aresia and this island and this lighthouse that's basically like you're getting close to the land of the gods. So this is what the elves get who are returning to Valinor. They're on an island that is just outside the main continent and it is part of this beautiful paradise. But what do the men get? To the fathers of men and the three faithful houses, rich reward also was given. Aonwe came among them and taught them, and they were given wisdom and power and life more enduring than any others of mortal race have possessed. A land was made for the Edain to dwell in, neither part of Middle-earth nor of Valinor, for it was sundered from either by a wide sea. Yet it was nearer to Valinor. It was raised by Osei out of the depths of the great water. And it was established by Aule and enriched by Yavanna. And the Eldar brought thither flowers and fountains out of Tol Aresia, that land the Valar called Andor, the land of gift. And the star of Arendil shone bright in the west as a token that all was made ready and as a guide over the sea. And men marveled to see that silver flame in the paths of the sun. So the good people, the Edain, the ones who fought on the side of the valor, are finally rewarded. And they are separated from the rest of Middle-earth. Maybe this was a good thing, and maybe it wasn't. But they were given an island, a home, crafted by the Valar themselves, and closer to Valinor than to the rest of Middle-earth, the middle of this sea. It was shaped like a star, and it became known to the people who lived there and everyone else in Middle-earth as Numenor. Thanks for listening to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. If you'd like to learn more about other fantasy worlds, check out my other podcasts, the Elder Scrolls Lorecast, the Witcher Lorecast, and more at robotsradio.net. If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note on Twitter at robots underscore radio or join our amazing community on the Robots Radio Discord. There are links in the show notes or just search Robots Radio Discord or find the link on robotsradio.net. I'll see you next time. Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. 
Today we talk retrospectives with Agile coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or mirror board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast, so you turn all those retro notes into JIRA tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.